You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I am Nicole, a member of the committee staff. My co-host Elisa is a national security lawyer here in her individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or company. Hey, thanks for tuning in. NSLT is an auditory safe space for national security law nerds such as yourself and anyone else who wants to better understand national security. Because if you don't have context, you don't have much. The air is filled with surveillance satellites and planes that are collecting geospatial data. Who better to discuss this than Tom Monheim, the general counsel of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. And Tom has had a really awesome career. Let's talk about this briefly. He was, I'll say this fast, Deputy General Counsel at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, Senior Legal Counsel at the National Counterterrorism Center. He was the Associate Deputy Attorney General at the Department of Justice when they stood up the National Security Division. Amazing. All right, and Associate Counsel to the President of the White House. All right, so Tom, Uh, We always start with the law on NSLT because I think we can talk about things or say, oh, how outrageous that happened when there might be some statutory basis for it. Uh, Where does NGA get the authority to collect geospatial information and who gets that information? Great questions. Thanks, Elisa and Nicole, for having me. And uh, I also want to introduce John Gehring, uh, our superstar space expert, Eva McGinley, our awesome Army judge, advocate, and Sharon Vasquez, our exceptional executive officer who are joining me and part of a Team NGA. And the law, of course, is a great place to start. Uh, NJOGC's motto is know the law and find a way. So first, answering your question, uh, geospatial intelligence is defined in 10 U.S. Code Section 467, uh, which includes, generally speaking, anything that describes features, activities, and locations anywhere on Earth or below or above its surface. We have broad authorities that flow from both Title 10 and Title 50 as a combat support agency under DOD and also a member of the intelligence community. We have a range uh, of partners that we provide that information to. It can be federal, it can be international, it can be industry, it can be academia. And just to give you some flavor and your listeners some flavor of what we're talking about, you know, it could be to you know, DHS and FEMA to support hurricane uh, recovery. It could be to the State Department and USAID to help fight Ebola outbreaks in Africa. It could be to the Department of Justice and FBI to help support criminal investigations and prosecutions or the Department of Agriculture to help support you know, crop monitoring, uh, or federal agencies and uh, other entities involved in you know, wildfire support. So we've also supported the National Science Foundation and the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy to provide unclassified information about the Arctic. So we have great uh, variety and diversity uh, of missions, and uh, we also have authorities under Executive Order 12333, um, and a variety of other IC and DOD uh, regulations. And it's really ultimately OGC's job to make sure that we provide the legal support to make sure the agency is accomplishing its missions consistent with the Constitution and that law. So we have a, we have one rule here at NSLT, but DOD is the Department of... De- uh, sorry. <laughs> and the IC uh, is the intelligence community, which is a term that we all use for those agencies that are set forth in... Uh, uh, the executive order that, that describes them as well as they're even set forth again, they were admitted in the USA Patriot Act to, to add some agencies. All right, well. So the information that NGA collects, is it just topographical information, sort of a view from space? That's a great question. Certainly it includes information gathered from space, uh, from satellites, for example. 
And those satellites could be government satellites or commercial satellites. But we also have other places we collect information from, which includes airborne platforms like manned or unmanned aircraft, ground-based information that can be you know, captured by you know, handheld images, you know, cameras, video recorders, etc. And there are, of course, sea-based platforms uh, that can be on ships or underwater that help survey uh, different features for safety of navigation or, or other purposes uh, at sea. And again, it requires you know, a lot of different kinds of sensors to collect a lot of information, but, uh, but a lot of different types uh, of information collected really from any number of uh, places in a number of ways. So um, I don't think too many people would realize that there are subsea imagery, um, some of the things that you describe. Uh, that's a, a far more expansive concept um, of uh, geo, what do you, how do you call it, geo something? Geospatial intelligence. Geospatial. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like the spatial part needs to be something else, but um, who knows. So let's talk about the value of this kind of collection. You've talked about who you assist. But can you break it down, even offering non-specific, somewhat general examples of this um, kind of assistance? And if you could also put it in the um, the military context as well. Sure. So starting with a, a non-military uh, specific context, you know, this can be foundational, uh, and by that I mean things that build uh, on to uh, to understand you know, maps and charts, and sometimes we. Uh, the agency have said that you know, employee number one was George Washington when he was the surveyor of Virginia. Uh, and so it, it can be just understanding you know, where something is or where someone is you know, on, on Earth. So again, early routes include surveyors. It could be you know, aerial balloons to check weather or troop formations from the Revolutionary War to Civil War to you know, other uh, examples you know, throughout the course of history. You know, but that foundation can just be understand that the features to, to navigate safely in, in sea and land and air. But over time, as technology has evolved, you know, we also have technology that can look through clouds or see at night uh, or penetrate you know, surfaces to see what's you know, behind it. And that, of course, has a range of uses to either understand you know, for purposes of you know, the combat support aspect uh, of our mission, but it's also just to provide those geospatial intelligence needs. Uh, for example, as I mentioned, you helping on search and rescue recovery efforts or where are the fires, uh, you know, the hottest uh, or where are people in most danger or in the Ebola case, you know, what is the pattern of outbreaks so that the uh, various international and national and local organizations involved in that know where to go uh, or how to navigate to get to places. So, you know, really it's, a, it's an incredibly diverse uh, you know, set of, of missions and authorities that we have to provide that support to folks uh, really around the world. And one of the things that we talked about, I think, previously with a different guest was, you know, population movement as well, which has become so critical um, at this point um, in terms of mass migration and some of the other things that are now creating, to a degree, some instability. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's, a great, that's a great point, Elisa. And we have a whole category called human geography, which is essentially... Uh, anything that describes how humans are interacting with those features on Earth. So it could relate to culture, it could relate to where they live, where they move. Um, it, it could be useful for understanding from an analytical perspective uh, a population um, uh, and how to, how to support you know, State Department or other efforts uh, or military efforts or partner efforts to uh, engage uh, in those areas or just to you know, understand the, uh, the way that the world uh, is evolving and and so that's uh, that human geography uh, is, is an important and frankly you know, in demand growing for our customer sets, which include 
policymakers, uh, warfighters, and first responders. And the satellites that collect this information for NGA are not alone in space. Uh, we've talked before about the proliferation of low-cost satellites, and how does that have an impact on NGA, NGA satellites, and the advice that you give to all of those uh, clients and partners that you were talking about? No, that's a, that's a great point. Uh, and the final frontier, to use a, a, Star, a Star Trek reference, is certainly uh, no longer you know, just a, a distant uh, concept or an unexplored area. There are currently about 20,000 different trackable objects in space, which is remarkable. And space is increasingly congested and contested. So uh, just in the last you know, two years between uh, 2016 and 2018, the number of countries launching satellites has more than doubled. The number of country, there's the number of satellites have launched has more than doubled. And so you know, when you look ahead, it's going to get worse, much worse. There are mega constellations under development now that you know, each one could have thousands of, uh, of satellites. We've seen examples of collisions in space. In 2009, for example, the Cosmos Iridium collision, there's still about 3,000 pieces of debris floating from that collision more than 10 years later, traveling about 17,000 miles an hour. And that's just one example of the dangers that, that congested and contested space. And the contested part is, of course, that more countries, particularly China and Russia, are working on capability to, uh, to deter and ultimately possibly defeat our capabilities, knowing that the United States, as really the rest of the world, are increasingly reliant on that for communications and navigation uh, and in any number of civil and commercial and military uses. And they obviously have a very different uh, sort of regulatory and rule landscape than we do, so I imagine that presents like levels and levels of challenges. Um, let's talk about these partners. Um, some of the satellite, commercial satellites, are regulated by things like the FCC. Um, communication satellites, um, but there, it just seems like there's a lot of private brain growth right now in this area. So what is that relationship like? I know going back to when Eisenhower announced that there had to be these public-private partnerships, government couldn't go it alone. So where are we on that right now? I think we're expanding and accelerating uh, on the on the public-private partnership front. Um, and you know, we in uh, NGA have always uh, had partnerships as a high priority. Our current set of strategies that range from the national security strategy to the national defense strategy, the national intelligence strategy, and the NGA strategy all prominently feature partnerships. And as you mentioned, those partnerships can be with industry and commercial entities. They can be with state and local uh, uh, organizations. It can be with non-government organizations. It can be with international partners. So just to give you a flavor for where we are in 2019, NGA currently has formal relationships with approximately 70 different countries and more than 400 other entities, which is really remarkable. And that continues to expand. And part of the dynamic you know, that you mentioned before is a lot of the investment, both in terms of uh, satellites and small satellites, but also technology generally to include things like artificial intelligence and uh, automation and augmentation. The majority of that investment and a lot of that uh, your brain power, as you indicate, uh, is really happening in the private sector. And so it's uh, not only a good idea in principle, but it's a smart thing to do to partner uh, with industry uh, going forward, and, and we are actively doing that. That's got to be a challenge since so many corporations sort of see themselves as global entities and they have presence in countries with you know, sort of dubious um, intelligence practices and cybersecurity. That could make your job very complicated. There's certainly a lot of challenges. Uh, increasing globalization pr presents both a you know, challenge and opportunity. Part of, again, what an Office of General Counsel does is to make sure that what we're doing is within the scope of our authorities, that those agreements are in place, that we're helping 
uh, you know, our you know, clients and partners mitigate you know, risk where we can, but, but it, is, uh, it is exciting um, and challenging at the same time, yes. And so where is this all going in the future? Uh, that's a great question. So, you know, with respect to you know, NGA specifically, you know, we, you know, will continue to provide, you know, geospatial intelligence for warfighters and policymakers and first responders. You know, the geospatial intelligence revolution more broadly, you know, as uh, that information becomes increasingly accessible and relevant to other places in industry or even individuals, the, the power of that will be increasingly in uh, everyone's hands. You know, there have been some talk about you know, what some have described as a, a GWINT singularity, meaning that you will know where everything is at, at any given time anywhere on Earth. And you know, that may be you know, a ways away, but, uh, but the idea uh, about even being, you know, having more understanding and more data, it will necessarily drive innovation and transformation because our former director estimated we would need 8 million analysts uh, to be able to process and analyze all the information that we expect to get in the coming years. Uh, and that problem will only continue to increase, uh, as some estimate, that the amount of data on Earth generally doubles every two years. So this is a, this is a, you know, a challenge and an opportunity uh, that will be uh, something important for us, NGA, but also the Department of Defense, the intelligence community, the government, and the world, frankly, uh, to, to grapple with uh, going forward. So uh, you, you talk about the numbers of analysts that would be required to sort of cull through this data. Um, one of the things that's interesting, and we were talking earlier, you gave a talk of, uh, in the university club today, and you talked a little bit about sort of directing the algorithms, algorithms just really being um, a series of directions, if you will. So um, what is, sort of, is there a long-term vision beyond just sort of the next 10 years? I know long-term visions are often somewhat curtailed by things like appropriations. Right. Well, the, that's a great question. So the, uh, the Department of Defense has recently released an artificial intelligence strategy, uh, which is a, uh, an attempt to have a more unified effort and a more strategic approach to artificial intelligence within the department. And NGA is, is part of that uh, and supporting that, of course. Uh, and there are a number of other intelligence community initiatives. You know, more broadly, uh, that is one of the challenges that the United States faces. Uh, you know, we have not, frankly, you know, had the, the level of, you know, Public discourse, the level of government, uh, you know, strategic, um, uh, you know, policies, uh, the level of investment that some of our uh, competitors like China and Russia have had. In fact, you know, there's publicly available information that there are individual Chinese companies that, that invest more in artificial intelligence and technology than the entire U.S. government. Well, that's comforting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's and, great. And I, but you know, in the in that context, uh, I think data, wh whether you're able to take advantage of it or not. Uh, you know, the Economist magazine you know, said data is to this century what oil was to the last, a driver of growth and change. You know, uh, Russian President Putin said whoever becomes a leader in artificial intelligence will become the rule of the world. You know, those are perhaps a little bit dramatic, uh, but I think the, the point is important. And I think the, you know, the Department of Defense, the intelligence community, the government um, is, uh, has realized and is now you know, actively working on how to think about that longer view uh, about artificial intelligence and, and uh, and, and what the capabilities and the challenges are. And so uh, I think you know, that, that's, that's encouraging. That and we've got a lot of great teammates who are working in those areas too. So that's also encouraging. I hope it's, um, and I'm not asking, but I hope it's a part of their portfolio to address sort of our cultural tendency to think short term, uh, by clicks, quarterly reports, two-year election cycles and the like. And you know, obviously some of our, um, as you call them, competitors 
uh, culturally think long term. Absolutely. Uh, very different from us. Absolutely. All right. Well, um, the president has announced something that you know I thought got very little fanfare, but jumped out at me um, having been that little girl in the theater, imagining <laughs> myself flying the Millennium Falcon. Um, but we're going to have a space force. Um, and shout out to my sister, an airline pilot, uh, who would have loved this. I can tell you. Um, can you talk about that, what law will govern, and how is that going to impact uh, the work at the NGA? A great question, and also as a, as a fan of and a uh, product of you know, Star Wars and, and other uh, such, you know, then seemingly science fiction, um, the, the Space Force uh, is one of the examples that the, the current administration policy is uh, as part of a broader effort to uh, reorganize uh, the, the U.S. government and Essentially, you know, Space Force will be you know the organization that you know trains and equips you know the combatant commands that are responsible for operating in space. So that combatant command is the U.S. Space Command, uh, which officially stood up uh, a few weeks ago on August 29th, and uh, took over those uh, responsibilities from Strategic Command. Uh, but eventually, the idea is that all the services, you know, the Air Force, Army, and Navy, will provide uh, you know people and uh, other resources into a space force that will then organize, train, and equip the forces for the, the space command. And we will, of course, continue to support. We, we have a team that's already uh, embedded with uh, uh, space command. We, we had them previously with Air, you know, Air Force Space Command. Uh, and we will continue that strong uh, partnership. And you know, generally, you know, we view space, although there are unique aspects of it, the way we have with other domains like sea, land, air, cyber. You know, we have the ability... Uh, and the intent to, to be able to, to utilize you know, all domains to collect uh, you know, geospatial intelligence for the, the benefit of the nation and our interests. Well, when we partner with others, um, given our history and our founders, could we be called the Rebel Alliance? <laughs> I think that's a great idea. I think so. <laughs> so, Tom, what will your job look like in five years, given all these potential changes down the road? Another great question. So I think on a high level, the job of a general counsel or an officer general counsel will sound similar. It will be to provide timely, accurate, practical advice to enable the agency's missions consistent with the Constitution and all law. But I think the how we do that will change dramatically. I think one area it will require, you know, we have a great team now, but it will require an increasingly tech-savvy, agile, and diverse workforce. Uh, it'll, now by tech-savvy, I mean people who are either understand or can quickly get up to speed and try to keep pace with uh, the you know, technology developments uh, and the, just the dynamic aspect of the world. Uh, agility, uh, using you know, the McChrystal team of teams concept that it's really adaptability and agility more so than efficiency that are the, the, you know, the, primarily, uh, you know, ten, the primary tenets uh, for success uh, going forward. That'll be true in this uh, you know, area as well. And then really a diverse workforce in every sense of that word with different experiences, different perspectives to add to the team uh, and, and you know, make us better and try to tackle some of these challenges. So we will continue to expand our partnerships, so even more so than we do now. I think those numbers that I mentioned before will have gone up, um, and we will you know, have increasingly you know, partnered uh, with folks you know, around the country uh, and, and around the world. And, uh, and I think that it will continue, though, to be as it is now, an incredibly exciting opportunity uh, and, and privilege to serve. So for somebody who's interested in being part of a great team, working on things that matter to the nation and the country's future, then uh, I think you know it's, it, it will be just as exciting, if not more so, in five years than it is now. And I hope by then they have a dedicated bike lane <laughs> to the facility so that the now millennials will 
all want to come out there? That is actually one of many things that have already been suggested to us, and we're working on a lot of those quality of life uh, issues, and we've actually made some good progress on that. And it helps not just the millennials, frankly, but I, I benefit from, and both as an employee and as a, as a leader and manager have come to appreciate uh, even more than I ever did before you know, the importance and value of being able to do that so you can you know, for as committed and selfless uh, as you are to the nation, it's important to be able to do that uh, also with your families and your friends uh, and other priorities, too. Just remember, on 9-11, the cyclists got home first. Yes. Putting it, <laughs> putting it out there. All right. Well, uh, Tom, thanks for coming in and talking with us today. I hope you'll come back and join us in the future. Uh, as this space army um, gets up and running, uh, I think that's going to be exciting. I also think we're looking at a time, correct me if I'm wrong, where Russia has now got a space air force, uh, China has a space air force. Um, we're looking at dramatic changes in the climate and the globe, which I know NGA is going to be on top of uh, and be helpful in terms of our understanding and responding to that. So we hope you're going to come back. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, and I'd be happy to come back anytime. And, and thanks to your listeners uh, for, for listening as well. All right, terrific. And thanks for listening to National Security Law Today. Remember to subscribe and rate us on your listening app of choice. We will hyperlink the law referenced by Tom as well as his bio. Those will be found in the notes to, to our podcast, and we'll see you next week. You can always find the links to the Black Letter Law and articles on today's topic at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity and in the notes to this podcast. And you can also find information on the Standing Committee on Law and National Security's upcoming annual conference this November 7th and 8th. Check out the speakers and the panel topics on our website or drop us a note at NationalSecurity at AmericanBar.org, on Twitter at ABANatSec or on our Facebook page. We welcome your feedback. Hey, thanks for listening. Make sure you're at the conference. You know, social networking isn't really networking. You're going to have to show up, and we hope to see you while the price is still low. We'll see you next week for more National Security Law. The views expressed on National Security Law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy. 